Welcome to the Seamland podcast. My name is Seamland. Today I'm playing you an episode of me on my friend Roger Snipes' podcast, The Roger Snipes Show. Roger is a bodybuilder and fitness coach from the UK. We talk about my book, Stronger by Stress, that you can get on Amazon. So, Seam, my good friend, how are you doing? I'm doing uh, pretty good and uh, enjoying the autumn as it is. How about you? Yeah, good. Very well. In fact, I'm, I'm really embracing the autumn, you know, as the weather starts to dip in temperature, I feel as though that is when my most um, vibrance comes out. I, I actually enjoy when the weather is cold. I don't know if it's mm. something to do with me being born during a cold time, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm waking up at like four o'clock every day now quite easily. Nice. Whereas in the summer, when you'd expect people, you know, no winter blues and all that sort of thing, just waking up super early. Um, now I find it more natural. How, how do you find it waking up during the, uh, the darker months? Yeah, I think it's yeah, pretty interesting. Like uh, I usually would uh, sleep slightly longer during the winters because like there's not that much sunlight. Uh, and during the summer, like just the sun itself is gonna wake me up uh, sooner. Uh, but yeah, I, I usually still uh, get up uh, slightly early but uh yeah like the timing uh, may be slightly different yeah yeah why do you think i'm weird that way <laughs> <laughs> well it's it might it might have to do with uh some other factors like um maybe you have just more energy during this time for some reason or uh, maybe you have uh, let's say less stress or uh, less less uh, physical exertion something like I, I i also find that if i'm like super physically active then i'll just need more sleep and if I'm like yeah. less uh, active, then uh, uh, I'll, you know, if I'm like more indoors, uh, then I'll just have less demand for sleep as well. Yeah, yeah. Hmm, that's really interesting. But cold itself gives a kind of, there is some kind of energy from it. I remember when, when I was doing uh, cryotherapy for a while, when I'd leave the, the I don't know, the, the chamber, I'd have this, this massive surge of energy and it's pretty similar as the cold arrives and i go out i don't put on a hat i wear minimal clothes and then when i'm done for that jog or cycle in the cold and i go back home i feel i feel incredible whereas i don't feel that in the summer if i go and i jog in the summer um i'll sweat like much sooner um and i'll feel more tired afterwards and i don't feel as good afterwards i mean you know I, I enjoy the fact I've been out, but it's, it doesn't feel as great. So that's, that's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It is like the cold uh, does increase your uh, alertness and uh, focus. So um, kind of uh, the uh, heat itself can make you like slightly drowsy. Uh, and uh, it is true that, you know, like I, I also find, you know, easier to kind of work out in, in a slightly cooler environment rather if it's like too hot and uh, like recovery is also slightly better if you're like cooled down. That's like the cryotherapy and uh, cold showers also help with that, like reducing the inflammation and the soreness. So that can also be like a factor. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, top, the topic of today I'd like to cover is based on your new amazing book, I know you've actually, you're actually working on another one as well. But before we get to that, let's talk about your book, which is called Stronger by Stress. Now, a lot of people are doing their very best to try and avoid any kind of stress whatsoever. 
you know. Um, but you're saying that it's actually good to have a bit of stress in your life. Could you give us a, a general synopsis of what your book is about? And then we'll start to dissect and go into little parts of the book. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it is true, like, you know, stress can be harm if it's a chronic and if it's in excess, but uh, like moderate amounts of stress is actually very beneficial. And uh, like, you wouldn't really want to live like a completely stress free life uh, either. And because like, for example, like people who are sedentary, they don't experience any like physical stress from exercise, then they are like more, more likely to get like some disease or they just have a poor uh, metabolic uh, health as a result of that. So like, you know, exercise is a good example of this positive beneficial stress that is uh, good for you in, uh, in the right amounts. And likewise, like stress, like mental stress, uh, work stress, those things, they can also be uh, beneficial because they kind of stretch our boundaries. They force us to uh, get out of our comfort zone and uh, kind of force us to do things that we normally wouldn't do. And uh, th there, the kind of principle of the moderation is also um, applicable. So, you, of course, chronic stress can be leading to you into some uh, diseases. But um, if you're like, if you're like never exposed to uh, deadlines, or you're never exposed to some uh, outside stress, like you're, you're living in a, let's say in a forest in a cave, and you don't experience like uh, screaming other people or uh, traffic jams or something, then you're very vulnerable to those things as well it's like if you're kind of used to those things on a regular basis then you can adapt to them uh, to a certain extent and they have less of an effect on you so that's why you know we shouldn't want to avoid stress um, uh, all the time we should want to kind of know how to uh, deal with it better and uh, that's what my book is also going to you know talk about this talk talks about this uh, phenomenon of a stress adaptation uh, which is described by this uh, biological phenomenon called uh, hormesis and hormesis is like uh, basically describes like what makes a poison deadly is the dosage uh, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger <laughs> is those kinds of quotes uh, that the small amount of stress and small amounts of toxic something can actually be beneficial by just uh, strengthening the body and uh, improving uh, resilience awesome awesome so let, let's talk about hormesis. Let's try and go a bit more into that. I've heard about hormetic stress and hormesis, and I've always wondered, you know, what is the happy medium? When does a person know, okay, I'm applying the right amount of stress. I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow from this. And when do you know it's too much? Like, what is that happy medium? Yeah. What is it? And what is the happy medium? How, how do we find that? you know, that, that crunch point. Yeah, that is a uh, important uh, kind of core essence of hormesis. And uh, well, the, the idea behind hormesis is that something in small amounts is not enough to kind of elicit a response. Uh, if it's too much, then it's going to lead to like a burnout and, uh, you know, uh, wear down. And if it's in the, like the moderate zone, that's where you see the benefits come from, uh, like improved health, improved fitness, improved uh, resilience. And uh, our bodies are basically experiencing different kinds of stressors on a daily basis all the time. Uh, we experience, you know, uh, hormesis uh, fr from like sunlight. We experience like this UV radiation on our skin that uh, in, in moderation is very beneficial for, you know, synthesizing vitamin D. 
uh, getting some other nutrients, uh, synchronizing the circadian rhythms, etc. But if it's too much, then it can lead to like you know, sunburn, uh, skin cancer, those things. And but if it's too little, then it's also problematic. You have a weaker immune system, and uh, just a hormonal imbalance. So uh, that's a, like a good example of uh, something that is in the hormetic uh, zone. Uh, it's hard to like um, pinpoint exactly how much is uh, too much, but you know, essentially with vitamin d you can take like a blood test to see um, what's your vitamin d status and they say that the, for healthy range it should be about about like 60 to 70 nanograms per uh, deciliter and uh, if it's lower than that then it's a sign of some deficiency or insufficiency if it's higher than that then that might be also uh, problematic so uh, the kind of happy medium is somewhere there uh, other examples would also be like you know exercise uh, if you're getting winded by walking up a flight of stairs, then that's probably not enough exercise or you don't have like sufficient uh, cardiovascular fitness. Uh, but uh, at the same time, if you're, you know, constantly sore, uh, you can't really drag yourself out of the bed without uh, drinking a bunch of coffee. Uh, you're unmotivated, you're depressed, uh, you're, you know, experiencing physical pain all the time. And you're not like, you hit a plateau as well. You're not progressing, then that can be a sign of too much exercise. You're overtraining. Mm. And uh, some good examples to measure that would be, you know, heart rate variability. If your uh, heart rate variability is elevated, then that kind of shows that you're recovered, you're uh, within the uh, beneficial zone of uh, this uh, stress. But if it's too low, then that can be either, you know, not enough exercise or too much exercise. Uh, so I find the heart rate variability is one of the easiest uh, kind of metrics uh, you can measure to assess your overall uh, stress uh, and or and the state of your nervous system on a daily basis mm. would you suggest a wearable during this time like all the time or some of the time yeah definitely like uh well i use like i, I personally use like the aura ring so uh, that can give you like a very uh, easy thing to use uh, on a daily basis so i'll just you know look at my sleep and uh, look at my heart rate variability my overall basal uh, the resting heart rate as well uh, but uh, there are like more, uh, you know, these chest straps as well that you can use to measure your HRV. But uh, I, I, I get like the um, most, you know, the biggest effects I find just using the ring uh, and it's like very simple. Yeah, yeah. I've spoken to a few people about wearables and um, I have an aura ring as well. But I find that uh, sometimes it can become a bit, it takes up much of your time and you keep checking to make sure that everything is uh i don't know like in in the right zone and i don't know i it, i do find it quite questionable if there is a, a point where it's too much what's your thoughts on that do you, do you feel as though you need to set a certain time limit to have the wearables like maybe not wear it on some days or uh, only look at it at certain times or what's your thought process on that yeah, it can definitely become like a obsession and uh, also like a distraction. So you shouldn't like solely rely on a sp specific metric or a gadget. Um, you should always kind of uh, blend it together with your own uh, intuition and uh, how you feel. But the problem is that uh, initially our intuition may be false and uh, we don't have like any objective data about our current state of health. Uh, so that's why I think... Um, when you kind of start off uh, with your biohacking journey or uh, trying to improve some aspects of the fitness, then it is very beneficial to you know measure everything uh, uh, at least to within reason uh, for um, for a few uh, days or weeks uh, to kind of get this baseline, 
uh, understanding about uh, you know how does your body eat how does your body work and um, what's your state currently and then you can start to you know deviate from it or do it less mm-hmm. uh, consistently so to say so you don't have to always measure your sleep uh, or track it uh, you can do it uh, only on days that you you know see that something is wrong or something you're curious uh, or you're like preparing for something some kind of an event uh, then it, it is a uh, worthwhile to still track it but on a regular basis if you're you know once you kind of get the grasp of it once you actually know what it feels like to have let's say high hrv uh, or low hrv then you can also start to c- connect the dots as well okay this is how i feel and then you don't really need to uh, use it uh, that often yeah how long have you been using your aura and collecting data yeah well i i, I used it uh, even before the this generation ring uh, i had like the big one the uh, first uh, generation which was like a really strange uh, uh, like a big rock on your finger but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th- that was like maybe three three years ago or something or four years even um yeah like maybe three years something uh, like that uh, I, I don't use it all the time uh, uh, but i just uh, wear it and uh, kind of maybe like 90 percent of the time it does give me like a data right right okay cool i think i've been using it maybe for about a year now um yeah and yeah, as I said, like I, I do try to not focus too much on it. It's a bit difficult sometimes as I'm like, oh, I wonder how my sleep is. And, um, you know, like, oh, I'm feeling good today. Let me just check what my score is like, you know, how much percent and that sort of thing. But it's good to hear what you say about that. Um, so you've got like different types of stresses. You've got, um, I don't know, normal stress uh, and you, you have chronic stress what what is the differences in what's going on in the body is there a benefit to chronic stress at all <laughs> right um yeah what's what's the main differences so that people would know maybe like if they don't have a wearable to check and you know quanti- have quantifiable data in front of them how can they perhaps use their own intuition to know what zone they're in yeah for sure well uh, uh, like physiologically uh, like the physical stress and psychological stress are very similar. So uh, they cause a similar uh, stress response in the body, uh, which uh, is characterized by this uh, elevated heart rate, uh, elevation of the stress hormones, slight this arousal and anxiety, and uh, increased blood flow, and uh, just this focus or intensity. And you know you can also create, let's say, the same or at least like a very similar response by just imagining a threat in your head as well as doing it with like exercise or something like if you run away you can just like watching a scary movie or a horror movie does make you feel quite scared and it does create this slight anxious response and stress response although there's no like real physical danger you're just imagining in your head and uh, that's why it's a that's why it's hard to like uh, differentiate uh, between Mm, let's say uh, physical stressors and psychological stressors and uh, kind of the problem is that as humans we are exposed to all these different stressors coming at us uh, all the time uh, we expo- we're exposed to many physical stressors like in the example of you know air pollution and uh, these very sub liminal or very su- su- very small stressors that we don't really notice as well as these uh, psychological stressors like traffic jams noise pollution other people uh, work and uh, those things so they do because if, and, and if you're like in this uh, stress mode uh, throughout the entire day, all the day, uh, when you wake up and going into bed, or every every event is kind of connected to another stress response. Like you're, 
drinking co coffee in the morning that creates a small stress response then you're you know stuck in traffic you're angry at someone else and uh, you're you know stressed out at work then you go to the gym then you eat like a bad diet or something uh, all those things can just add up and uh, usually you know everyone has a different tolerance to stress as well as uh, let's say like a bucket or a certain limit how much we can handle uh, so if you depends on whether or not you're going to become chronically stressed out or whether or not you're going to be recovered depends on the amount of stress the amount of stressors you experience uh, uh kind of the frequency of them and uh, also just the ability or ability to recover so like you, you don't necessarily have to reach like burnout if you're taking very good care of your sleep uh, your overall recovery you have like good relationships and uh, those things because like also research finds that like the your ability to toler tolerate stress is dependent on like things like your socioeconomic status uh, your relationships, uh, your even like past trauma, like childhood trauma, childhood experiences, they all affect how you respond to future stressors and what kind of an effect it has. So like PTSD uh, victims, uh, they have like a very, uh, at least like a slightly lower ability to deal with stress and as well as like children who have been uh, traumatized in the past or something, uh, they all have like slightly lower uh, ability to deal with stress but you can also just build it up again as a, like a if you don't have any of these uh, like serious trauma then you can just uh, increase your stress tolerance by taking care of your uh, sleep recovery and uh, not really you know working too much or uh, going into this burnout mode yeah yeah that's that's really interesting i think it sounds to me like if you do have you know uh, post-traumatic stress then it's it's probably important to speak to like a, a psychotherapist or something and really get that underlying issue dealt with so that your your ability to deal with other stresses kind of raises the bar on it really mm. um yeah I, yeah i do think so like a cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy is also something that is you know mostly focused on that trying to kind of uh, help the person to uh uh, find out what, why do they feel a certain way or what emotions do they feel and those things. Yeah, because um, most people, especially like men, uh, they don't really talk about their uh, emotions and feelings and uh, that can yeah, keep the person in this uh, chronically stressed out uh, state where they are, you know, aging towards uh, depression and anxiety. Absolutely. And what's quite interesting is um, that's a subject which I'll definitely like to cover. Not with, not with yourself, but um, about men men going through stress i've been doing you know a few podcasts more directed on men because sometimes men don't ask questions and especially when it comes to stress you know i guess it's a stereotypical thing where guys are just you know expected to just suck it up that'll be all right you know yeah, yeah. just okay. uh just grow a pair of balls that's it you know what i mean like it, yeah so um I think it's really important for a guy to know what, what he's supposed to do when he reaches that level of stress where it's not, uh, it's not beneficial anymore. It's okay. It's getting to the point of where it's chronic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it is an issue. And uh, just as social support is also like a very big factor for um, dealing with stress and uh, even like experiencing less negative side effects from the stress. So that for some, some studies, uh, they experiment with like uh, couples uh, so they <laughs> take a woman and they put like this uh, electrifying like a bracelet around their ankle and uh, they give her electric shocks 
and uh, if the if the if the woman is able to hold the hand of her husband or like a spouse then they register like less of this stress response in the brain uh, because they're able to they get the social support from their loved one who is you know mm -hmm. holding their hand and supporting them whereas if they hold the hand of a stranger then they don't have like that, that pronounced um, decrease in the stress response. There is like a slightly smaller decrease in the stress response, but it's not as significant as it is if they're holding, you know, especially their loved one's uh, hand. So the uh, social support is uh, pretty important. <laughs> That's really interesting. What about the other way around? Was there an experiment on that? Like if, <laughs> I don't know whether the guy holds on to the girl's hand more or something. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I would imagine that pr probably a similar uh, situation. Um, mm. I, I don't, I don't know if that in that particular study they did it with men, but I, maybe they probably did. It would be interesting though, because sometimes you know, if if, if the man, man is expected to be tough and just deal with the situation, maybe he might feel, you know, don't worry, I got this, and let go of her hand unconsciously or something like that. You mm. know, he, you know, as you mentioned, yeah. it made me think of a time when um, there was something. I don't know who was speaking. It was where two people, two people were talking. Like there, there was, there was a study where if two people are being interviewed, like a male and a female, a couple being uh, interviewed, where if if any questions were asked, it, it would show if these two people were really intimate. They were before they answered the question they would look at each other first or like to, to kind of, um, I don't know. It just showed more of a connection, more of a, mm. you know, a deeper connection. Like they'll look at each other first, maybe start answering the question as they're looking at their partner and then start speaking, you know, to whoever's asking the question and the people that were just speaking directly to the interviewer, uh, without looking at their partner showed that there was some sort of disconnect. Mm. It's got nothing to do with stress, but I thought <laughs> I'd just <laughs> throw that in. Well, yeah, so, yeah. I, I, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say like, yeah, like for a good relationship, you need to kind of uh, take the uh, like opinion of the other into account or something uh, before you answer. Mm. But it, it's not even a case of like asking what, you know, the partner suggests to uh, respond. They look at their partner first as they are answering the question. There's a, something going on there where they look at their partner first. Not, not to say, oh, am I, am I saying the right thing? Or what's your thoughts on this? <laughs> you know, they just right. look at them as they're answering. So right. that's, that's quite interesting. So another type of stress, which um, has increased for me recently, is fasting. I found that um, now I'm waking up a little bit earlier and I, I go out for a jog or a cycle and it's probably around six degrees. Um, I feel it a lot more when I'm cycling because I'm not, I don't have my whole body action involved. It's just my feet as I'm cycling. Um, I, feel the I feel a lot colder. Mm. And uh, so I go out and I cycle early hours of the morning and then I'll take my top off and really embrace the cold as the cold breeze is hitting me. And um, when I come back home, um, normally I'll break my, well, I was breaking my fast at around three o'clock. Now I'm breaking it because I'm waking up earlier. I feel almost desperate to eat by around 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, but fasting, fasting, 
What's the um, benefit of that type of uh, hormetic stress? Yeah, well, um, fasting has quite a lot of uh, health benefits. Um, one of the most uh, researched ones have to do with uh, improve the glucose metabolism. So a body, while well, doing the fast, your uh, blood sugar will drop and uh, your insulin will also drop. Uh, so thus you have less of, uh, let's say, this uh, poor glucose metabolism, at least uh, to a certain extent. And uh, that can be beneficial for uh, you know, some symptoms of diabetes or metabolic syndrome. Uh, it also lowers your uh, blood pressure uh, and uh, kind of promotes this you know, ketosis. You start to burn more uh, like body fat for fuel. And, uh, but, uh, but like a lot of the longevity benefits of uh, fasting uh, that they see have to do with uh, like the activation of these very uh, longevity genes and other pathways like uh, sirtuins, uh, foxoproteins and esophagy and uh, others that uh, just uh, the research shows that they have like a central component to uh, seeing uh, this uh, life extension in like calorie restriction as well as uh, intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting kind of turns on the same uh, pathways as, as calorie restriction and calorie restriction is a uh, one of the few uh, actual, actually proven ways to kind of extend lifespan in uh, virtually all species. And uh, intermittent fasting can uh, mimic uh, some of the uh, effects of that uh, without necessarily having to uh, reduce the calorie amount that much because um, during like the fastest state, the body is experiencing like these acute higher amounts of stress. So actually maybe get, getting more of these uh, benefits of lo on longevity from some intermittent fasting because uh, you turn on the process of autophagy and uh, you activate sirtuins much more if you are in the fast state, but it's more, uh, let's say, acute or shorter, so, so to say, you don't have to stay in there chronically uh, because like chronic calorie restriction can be also problematic. Like you can experience uh, nutrient deficiencies, uh, muscle wasting, uh, just frailty and low thyroid, all those things can be the result of you know eating like a very low calorie diet for the rest of your life. Which can be yeah. like avoided, uh, I think, uh, too, with the intermittent fasting. What's 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 a happy me happy medium with that? What's a good amount of fasting um, for a certain age type, um, for a certain the uh, health, like depending on your health, what would be a good amount to do? And um, also, male and female, there's there's going to be differences there. What's what's a happy medium for both or all different angles? Yeah. Yeah, it uh, depends on uh, like your current state of health. Um, so if you're already pretty healthy, uh, you're fit, you're exercising regularly, you don't uh, you know eat junk food and you don't overeat calories, then for you, uh, you can get away with uh, quite uh, little fasting. You don't have to fast for that long. Um, so usually the benefits of fasting start to appear uh, at, at least like, you know, 12 or 14 hours is where your uh, blood sugar begins to drop. That's where you you can start to see some uh, gradual increase in like ketones and fatty acid uh, metabolism. Uh, but uh, ideally I would say like, you know, the minimal effective dose is like 14 or 16 hours, uh, something like that. Mm, uh, but like the upper threshold, you know, what I think uh, like the benefits tend to peak out at around like day three or something, that's where you're going to start to see again, like the negative side effects of too much uh, muscle wasting and too much, um, you know, other problems uh, related to fasting and, so that's what I would say, like, you know, optimally 14 to 16 hours is a good uh, starting point for do like on a re regular basis. And maybe on some, some days, uh, a few times a year, you can go up to like 48 hours or something uh, or 72 hours at maximum. I think uh, you don't really need to go uh, beyond that. 
and it also varies like between uh, sexes and um, the age so older people shouldn't fast for that long either uh, like some people who are like above 60 for them I wouldn't definitely recommend to fast any longer than you know 20 or 24 hours so they would definitely have to stay like within you know 16 or 20 hour mark uh, because uh, for them it's harder to uh, you know build muscle and maintain it so they would experience uh, more of the catabolic uh, muscle wasting from fasting uh, and for women uh, the, they also are less and more sensitive towards the stress from fasting especially in relation to like thyroid uh, so they would experience uh, the, the low thyroid effects uh, slightly faster, and uh, like for, for you, you can definitely do intermittent fasting as a woman, uh, but you have to maybe uh, uh, let's say take into more caution with uh, your overall calorie intake, your overall stress levels, and uh, like exercise and those things, because uh, usually the low thyroid and slow metabolism isn't necessarily because of like uh, fasting; it's also because of uh, just the other things that uh, tend to happen, like uh, if you're fasting, you're doing intermittent fasting, then a lot of people just uh, subconsciously start to eat fewer calories and they uh, <laughs> end up with a, like a very low calorie intake. And they also combine it with a lot of hit cardio and uh, sleep deprivation and caffeine and uh, overall stress. So that's not, it's not necessarily the fasting causing the issue. It's all the other stressors that build up this overall uh, uh, response. Uh, so you, you always have to kind of no, you have to be aware of all the time the other stressors as well, uh, like mm. you know your environmental stressors, uh, your uh, I don't know, like psychological stressors, and all those all those things. Uh, we just have to kind of become uh, more mindful of those things. Yeah. So yeah, like so if your if your stress is up, then perhaps um, increase your calories a bit. Maybe would you need um, more or more nutrient density during that time? Sorry, uh, to, a sure. to, to a certain extent as well, like if you've been, uh, let's say, chronically restricting your calories for like a few weeks or months, then uh, yeah, you probably may need to, uh, you know, take a diet break or something, uh, eat a little bit more, um, at least, uh, at least uh, try to hit your like maintenance calories or something. Um, but like, uh, if you're, let's say, stressed because of, you know, overabundance of calories, or stressed because of uh, overeating or stressed because of uh, insulin resistance and obesity then um, then for that situation you just have to you just have to kind of swap out the bad foods and uh, swap still stick to like a whole foods based diet because like you know if you are stressed out then you also get the cravings for the junk food and uh, you mm -hmm. get the kind of uh, the desire to overeat and to kind of make yourself feel good uh, with the food like the comfort foods they have a, this name for a reason so you kind of gravitate towards them if you are stressed out or um, emotionally kind of uh, stretched out so that's where you kind of want to eat those foods and, but could at the same time that's them? yeah like it has to do with uh, like a leptin and ghrelin so you leptin is the satiety hormone and uh, ghrelin is the hunger hormone so usually if you are stressed out then you have like higher levels of ghrelin and uh, lower levels of leptin so um, and the stress itself just uh, you know activates the sympathetic nervous system which is you know makes you want to you know get get some nutrients and uh, kind of recover from it uh, but the problem is also that your body is very or your body is less capable of dealing with the junk food if you are stressed out and if you're um, you know uh, with uh, with uh, leptin resistance uh, so th that would be like the worst time to actually eat <laughs> if you're, ask, there's, yeah. there's something which I think a lot of people do go through this. Life is not a simple cruise. 
you have things yeah. that is going to be thrown into you left, right, and cen center, and you're going to get stressed. During that time, I don't know why it happens, but you just want to eat junk. You just <laughs> want to eat junk. Okay. It's like, okay, I'm feeling hungry. I need to, I should reach for something which is nutrient dense and I've had it. I'll go for something nutrient dense. I'll eat it and it does nothing. And I still want junk. I'm like, no, right. no, I'll eat again. It does nothing. In fact, as I'm eating it, saliva in my mouth says, nah, do you know what? I ain't working with you today. And it just plays in my mind to go and get junk. Otherwise it's going to remain this, this thought process in my head right. that you are still hungry remains there. I know a lot mm. of people go that, go through that. Yeah. What's happening there? And is there a way out of it? <laughs> well, uh, that can be like many reasons. Uh, so um, especially like, you know, dieters or uh, fitness people who are, you know, at least uh, to some parts of the year, they are restricting their calories and they are ex experiencing this nutritional stress, then uh, it is natural for the body to uh, want to get, you know, uh, these uh, cravings for the junk food because uh, it's a very dense source of calories and it does uh, promote uh, dopamine and the feeling of reward if you do eat uh, that comfort foods. Uh, to a certain extent, like it's not necessarily like inherently bad, like everyone makes mistakes and everyone has like these guilty pleasures. Uh, I don't think that you need to be perfect uh, all the time and you don't have to be like this purist that you eat only uh, the purest foods. Uh, so, um, and actually like, you know, getting like actually like, you know, eating uh, some of these junk food every once in a while can have a positive effect um, on your uh, thyroid functioning and your uh, metabolic rate, so to say. So uh, if you have, let's say like a cheat meal, uh, that can be good for, you know, boosting up the metabolism again and kind of breaking through uh, weight loss plateaus, as well as just getting like the psychological, you know, uh, you know the, the ease or, you know, you get satisfied from eating it and then you don't actually want to eat uh, any junk for maybe like a few weeks or months again because you got, you got, you got satisfied from it and uh, you satisfied the craving. So uh, it's not, I don't think it's uh, as long as you're doing it, you know, deliberately, as long as you're mindful about it, then mm. it's not a problem. The problem, it, it becomes a problem if you're doing it uncontrollably or uh, you're doing it uh, while sacrificing your health or while sacrificing uh, your productivity or whatnot. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not against, you know, deliberate uh, cheating or something. <laughs> uh, yeah. if, it, if, it ser if it serves a purpose and if it's like uh, planned, planned into the schedule. I think that's really important. And I speak to clients about that as well. Be like, you know, you're going through, let's say, for instance, uh, women who's going through their cycle as a, a week lead up to their, um, to their, uh, you know, um, menstrual cycle, they do tend to want to crave a bit more. So I'm like, do you know what? Just give into your body for this week. Let's right. try and keep it. Um, we don't go too crazy, but yeah. listen to your body a bit. It's speaking yeah. to you and it needs certain things. So, um, yeah, I know that as much. It's, it's speaking to you, so you, you you do need to listen to it to a certain degree. But I think what's important is understanding what's going on rather than mindless eating and thinking that you know this this makes yeah. me happy. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> let me stay like this. <laughs> yeah, like and and the problem is also like with with this very restrictive diets is that uh, they they may end up creating this uh, binge and uh, purge cycle that you restrict, you avoid. Uh, a particular food like you know uh, cake or something for a long time and then you eventually accidentally cave in 
and then you eat like a whole ton of cake, uh, like uh, for several days or something, you fall off the wagon for uh, days and weeks maybe, and then you get off the get off the train again, and uh, you restrict again, and then you go into this vicious cycle again. Uh, whereas if you were to do it, let's say, uh, on a more regular basis, okay, I'll have you know this uh, some treat every once in a while, then you avoid this uh, craving and you avoid this uh, uh, like uncontrollable eating because you're you don't you don't experience this scarcity. You're actually actually you you make the kind of decision that you know I'll. I'm able to have this treat uh, every once in a while and I'm not like uh, completely uh, avoiding it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's really important. If you can find a healthier alternative to uh, as they call cheat meal. I prefer to call it yeah. sin food, but <laughs> if if you yeah, you can find a healthier alternative and um, there's there's kind of less of a crash afterwards. Um, yeah. I find that there's certain foods, if I have too much gluten or if I have too much sugar, I think sugar is a, is a big one for me. If I have like a milk chocolate, uh, you know, yeah. I feel, you know, dopamine just flies through the roof, but then the crash afterwards and the headache, and then yeah. I'm, I'm out for the count for a few days, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. Man, I have to sit in the sauna, try and sweat it out. And, <laughs> you know, it, it feels like I've taken, I don't know, some crazy drug, like some yeah. illegal <laughs> drug. And it's sure. so crazy that it's so vastly available to anyone, especially children. They can, yeah. there should be a cap on that. You know, <laughs> children could just walk in a shop and just buy as much sweets as possible. This should, that should be illegal. You know, yeah. <laughs> that should be. Yeah. I've seen, yeah. I've seen my daughter when she eats too much sweet stuff. She, what happens is she will, she will go in the kitchen and she's just like, she's looking around. I'm like, Zara, what is it? And she's just looking around nothing i'm like oh my god what has that sugar done to you i've said yeah. like seriously it's really bad so now yeah. it's like you know I, I put a curb on that i'm like no no more that's enough um yeah <laughs> just yeah. thought i put that bit yeah like if, if you you know get get it out of your diet then you do become like very sensitive towards uh carbs and sugar uh, or like the junk food like the yeah like eating like a snickers bar for me is like very stimulating at the moment like whoa this uh, it is like all the flavors and all the unnatural amounts of sugar and uh, other ingredients does make it feel like you know something overstimulating, and like funnily, if it it could also you know you do, you just don't want to eat it anymore uh, just by taking one bite or taking one Snicker bar, uh, you stop eating because uh, it's uh, quite uh, hard to deal with if you're not used to it. Mm -hmm. To me, it's again, it's like drugs, man. The moment you have a taste. You have this desire to want to eat more and more and more and more. And you know what's going on. Like, you know, once you, when you become very, you understand foods and how it affects your mind and everything, you know what's going on. You're like, oh my God, I just, I just can't help myself though. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. a horrible feeling. So, you know, pushing that aside, let's say you are, um, you're, in a, you're in a constant cruise. You know exactly how to do the fasting. You know, you're in a nice pattern, whether it's a 16-8 or 24 or, I don't know, 12-12 or whatever. And you want to combine it with keto. Um, that is probably going to add a bit more stress to your body, I would say. I know I've definitely felt it. And for me, when I do things, I don't like to do it by halves. I go, I go quite extreme, you know. <laughs> Yeah, all in. And, and people be like, that's crazy. And I think sometimes it is crazy. And I'm like, all right, I need to take my foot off the pedal now. But like, 
for people who want to just do a standard uh, um, um, a, a keto fast, um, what's, what's happening with the body there? Would you recommend it? And uh, at what sort of stage would you say a person should do it? Um, should they do it like on a regular basis, on a, a cyclical basis, or just what's what for who? How would it work, and what's the benefits? Yeah, well, uh, you know, low carb and uh, ketogenic diets uh, they mimic uh, also some aspects of uh, fasting by primarily uh, regulating uh, glucose metabolism and uh, lowering blood sugar, uh, but they also have like slight benefits on some of the longevity pathways, uh, like autophagy and sirtuins a little bit, uh, but they're again like slightly less pronounced uh, compared to fasting. Uh, but generally, uh, you know, I don't think that everyone needs to do a keto diet. Um, and I think I don't think that you should do it like all the time for the rest of your life either. But some aspects of let's say carb cycling or some carbohydrate restriction every once in a while can also uh, benefit the body by just improving uh, the glucose metabolism, imp improving insulin sensitivity and uh, also just increasing the body's metabolic flexibility, so to say. So if you're always eating carbs all the time, uh, you don't ever do fasting, you don't ever uh, do keto, then uh, let's say you, you are very efficient at burning carbs, uh, but you're also very slightly less efficient at uh, burning fat and uh, using uh, ketones and fats for fuel. So you're kind of very dependent of uh, this regular meal timing to uh, maintain stable blood sugar and uh, give your brain energy. Whereas if you're, let's say, keto adapted, you're used to burning fats and ketones, then for you it's very easy to skip meals and uh, to not uh, be dependent on this uh, snacking and uh, this uh, maintaining blood sugar all the time because you're tapped into your own body fat stores. So that's why part of the, one of the biggest reasons I think uh, it is worthwhile to go through like a short period of this keto adaptation uh, as to increase the, bu the buffer zone of the body's ability to uh, handle fasting as well as uh, um, increase the ability to burn fats and uh, ketones for fuel. So it increases this metabolic flexibility so that whenever you do skip a meal, your body isn't going to freak out about it. You're not going to crash. You're, gonna, you're not going to pass out uh, because of not uh, having a, you know, a, a spike in glucose. You're, you're just uh, tap into ketosis and uh, you'll burn uh, body fat for fuel so this this is actually has this you know ability to tolerate stress uh, better as well so be, okay. because uh you know you can you can handle lower levels of blood sugar without passing out or without experiencing the negative side effects of hypoglycemia and uh, other such problems so you have a like a bigger buffer zone for stress um, especially yeah. in, ter in terms of uh, nutrition uh, but doing it all the time chronically that can also lead to the other way around that you, if you're all always in ketosis uh, you're always eating low carb, you're always um, uh, burning uh, fats and ketones, then your body eventually loses its ability to do the other, other thing. It loses its ability to burn uh, carbs and it becomes slightly insulin resistant as a result of that. So that's why like whenever you are, you've been doing keto for months upon end and then you eat like a piece of candy or chocolate or uh, bread, something, then you experience like this, your heart is going to start to pound. You have like massive mm -hmm. uh, swing in blood sugar because your body is insulin resistant and it's not very uh, effective at uh, using that glucose uh, because of being in ketosis all the time. So that's why I, I find it very kind of uh, worthwhile to also cycle in and out of ketosis all the time to first, first of all, to increase the aspects of keto adaptation, but second of all, to get the metabolic flexibility that whenever you do uh, swap those fuel sources, you're not going to experience the negative side effects um, and you're not going to have to stay in this uh, 
adaptation phase uh, all the time and you can you know, mm. make uh, these adjustments uh, on a regular basis. So there's, there's loads of questions which was going through my head. Like, let's say, for instance, you're a person, you have quite a lot of muscle. Now, I've seen a few guys on YouTube who they literally live off keto. They're like, yeah, keto. I do this all the time. They do all these recipes on their channels and they're like, yeah, this is the way forward. And um, they, they say every once in a while, but not even as, as, as cyclical as, as you might think, but like every once in a while, they, they would do it and they say, yeah, it's okay. You know, they don't necessarily have a problem with it. They just don't do it too frequently. Right. What's your thoughts? Would you say that there's a difference in the, the period in which you can uh, remain on keto without having an issue with metabolic flexibility? Um, if you have a lot more muscle than someone else who doesn't. Well, uh, like uh, you, you don't necessarily need to uh, do uh, this uh, cyclical approach, so to say. So you could stay keto for the rest of your life. Um, but, uh, you know, that would, because like in the modern world, we can get away with a lot. Like we can go vegan for the rest of our life as well. We can go uh, on a keto diet for the rest of our life, life as well. We can go on a carnivore diet for the rest of our life because we have access to all the resources. We have kind of food security. No one, like most people are not going to starve uh, or at least like no one is starving in the Western world. Uh, so you, you're getting away with a lot. Um, but um, if you were to be, you know, in a, like a more natural environment where the food scarcity is uh, higher, there's the seasonality aspect of food is also built into your environment, then in that case, you would naturally do the cyclical approach and you would maintain this metabolic flexibility. Mm. Uh, but, you know, in the modern world, we don't need to do that necessarily. I personally do it uh, because of just this kind of survival aspect and uh, <laughs> this adaptation aspect. So I want to be flexible and I also want to be prepared for like any potential uh, situation that may come in the future uh, where I where I don't have access to the food that I want to eat, uh, where I, and where in which scenario I have to survive upon the food that I have access to, regardless if it's keto or not, if that makes sense, you know. Yeah. Uh, and but but usually it takes maybe like a a week or two uh, for uh, this. Uh, it's not like a pathological insulin resistance that happens on keto. It's more of like the body just stops using the glucose as a main fuel source and kind of preserves it for the brain. So the muscles themselves just, uh, you know, say no to the glucose as to give it to the brain uh, whenever it does arrive. So it's uh, like a short term insulin resistance. It's not going to, you know, change. It's not going to make you sick and it's not going to uh, drastically change your metabolism in some way. You just, um, whenever, like, whenever you would uh, take like a massive intake of uh, carbohydrates or glucose when you're in this deep ketosis, then you would just see like this uh, spike in blood sugar and you don't really uh, create that enough insulin to shuttle that uh, blood sugar into the cells. So right. it would stay elevated for longer uh, for hours. Whereas like a normal healthy insulin or a blood sugar response would be that the blood sugar goes up and it then goes down because the insulin is coming in and shuttling the blood sugar into the cells. Um, whereas on like a strict keto or like the same can happen when you're fasting, you come off for like a five day fast. You're also in this deep ketosis and you are slightly insulin resistant and then the insulin isn't there to respond that quickly. So the only negative side effects of this, um, this situation is that your blood sugar would stay elevated uh, for longer. And you can, you can uh, prevent that by maybe 
first introducing like a smaller amount of carbs to break this ketosis, uh, you see a smaller spike in the blood sugar, uh, but it will also stay lower. And uh, then after maybe a few hours later, then you, would, you can probably resume to a, like a more regular way of eating without seeing uh, this uh, pathological insulin resistance. That's cool. That's, that's, that's good to know. That's really interesting to know. Um, you have a lot of people who are, well, may, <laughs> most people are overweight, let's be honest. Most people. So let's say you got, you got people who train on a regular basis, like me and yourself, who would probably be sub 15% uh, body fat. And you've got uh, people averaging, I don't know, over 20, like guys, for instance, yeah. over 20% body fat. You got people even more, you know, I remember there was one client that I, I, I took a body fat reading and it was, it was just under 50%. I was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> like, it, you know, it was serious, but it was quite comical. I was like, how can half of your body be fat? All right. We, yeah. we need to, we need to have a, a look into this. So obviously I went into some questions to find out about her whole overall lifestyle and, um, you know, not just food, but just everything. What was her stress levels like and sleep pattern and all of that. But, um, let's say for instance, somebody wants to start fasting, but you know, obviously it's, it's a hormetic stress. Um, and you know, if they've got so much body fat, they're already undergoing a lot of stress, but they really want to start this journey. Can they do a, uh, a, a, a fast, uh, a keto fast immediately? Or would it be a case of they should just do a fast or should they just do a, a keto? Um, what's your thoughts on that? What would be a nice introduction to the pathway of fasting and keto on someone yeah. who's got a lot of fat? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, what, what I would do is um, I wouldn't like throw them into a fast uh, immediately. I would, uh, first of all, I would just uh, get them off um, the junk food that they're, they might be eating um, and uh, try to you know, lower the amount of um, inflammation that they get from the diet as much as possible. Uh, because like obesity and adiposity itself uh, creates uh, like this uh, inflammatory environment. And, uh, you know, that's where a lot of the diseases will also kind of come from. Uh, so uh, I would uh, primarily eliminate all, all the processed foods, uh, all the vegetable oils, all the, uh, I would, you know, restrict the carbs to a certain extent, uh, but I may not need to go keto immediately. You just want to stop eating, uh, you know, the breads, uh, the pasta, uh, and maybe like, you know, the, the high carb foods is also a good idea to kind of eliminate uh, like potatoes and the rice because they don't necessarily need it uh, at, that, at that moment in time. And it can also just become like an empty source of calories at that point. So I would put them on like maybe like a paleo type of diet uh, initially. Uh, because like, you know, you, the idea isn't to just crash diet them and to make them lose as much, as much weight as possible. The idea is to uh, create new habits uh, that replace those bad habits. And, uh, you know, the founding, founding for that is this whole foods, um, relatively lower carb, uh, you know, paleo type diet, uh, primarily with a lot of vegetables, um, some um, fish, uh, meats, uh, maybe like a little bit of fruits and berries, uh, tubers, uh, those sort of things. Um, I wouldn't uh, put them on a keto diet immediately. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I might do it um, after a while, but the foundation would be this uh, whole foods based diet. Mm, okay, cool, cool. So during the fasting process or keto, uh, let's just say fasting, for instance, 
your your thyroid function is probably going to drop as well, isn't it? As well as testosterone. So let's just talk about the thyroid. Like, is there a benefit to stress on the thyroid in any way at all? Uh, Well, uh, yeah, it is true that uh, your thyroid and uh, metabolic rate will slightly decrease if you're doing fasting. Uh, But during the fasting process is actually beneficial uh, because uh, you wouldn't want to have like a super fast metabolism if you're fasting or starving because uh, that would entail that you start to burn through all the muscle and you're burning a lot of calories uh, during the process of you know survival uh, mm-hmm. so that slight drop in the metabolic rate is actually like an adaptive advantage in a survival scenario because you'll maintain more muscle mass and uh, you'll you know essentially uh, slow down some of the metabolic rate uh, but the problem is if it becomes chronic again and if you you know get out of the fast and then you maintain that same new set point that you have this again lower thyroid after breaking the fast and that can be problematic for weight loss because you have a lower metabolic rate as a result of that. So that's why I would, uh, you know, the fasting is good. It's not inherently harmful to the thyroid if uh, you don't do it chronically. Uh, but after the fast, you kind of have to kind of bump the thyroid up again. And uh, for that, uh, carbohydrates are a good source for that, uh, like uh, carbs and insulin. They help to produce the thyroid hormones uh, as well as just eating enough calories in general and uh, getting especially like protein and the other nutrients for the thyroid like zinc, uh, selenium, magnesium, uh, B vitamins, uh, those things. But uh, like carb cycling is a, one of the best ways to maintain a higher uh, thyroid functioning while doing keto or, or fasting. Yeah, I think that's incredible. Carb cycling, I, I think, is the one. Carb cycling yeah. and, uh, and intermittent fast. I think they work hand in hand perfectly um, better than just talking about being keto in all fairness. Um, That's, that's my personal thought and my personal experience. Um, So moving away from the food side of things, we might come back, who knows, but like you've got hot and cold stress as well. And um, I have I've experienced a lot of um, both. You know, I use the sauna every day <laughs> and I go out in the cold every day as well. What is the benefit of hot and cold exposure? So people know. Yeah. Um, well, uh, they, uh, they, either of them is going to activate a specific uh, complex of proteins. So uh, if you're in the hot or the heat, you're going to turn on these heat shock proteins that essentially start to uh, mitigate the damage from the heat stress and uh, repair the damage. And uh, the heat shock proteins will also promote autophagy. They uh, repair misfolded proteins. They lower inflammation and uh, modulate other, you know, uh, longevity genes. So, but in addition to that, like the uh, heat and uh, saunas, they improve your cardiovascular uh, function. They've been shown to uh, reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease as well as uh, cardiovascular mortality and uh, better blood flow. But even like for uh, muscle building, they or like you know body composition, they. Uh, increased growth hormone, uh, they uh, make you detoxify uh, you, you, like t- toxins and heavy metals. And yeah, just the general mental well-being is also elevated when you're in the heat or doing the saunas. Uh, with the cold, uh, cold uh, has also turning on these uh, cold track proteins, which essentially try to do the same, uh, but for this specific cold response. And uh, the cold tends to be more like anti-inflammatory, it lowers uh, inflammation, uh, it's been shown to ben- benefit like arthritis as well as a neurodegeneration. So uh, it has to do more of like just uh, recovery maybe and uh, lowering 
the kind of muscle soreness and those sort of things. But at the same time, the cold can also be, you know, cold can also have, let's say, because it suppresses inflammation, it can also shut down like the anabolic signal that you get from uh, exercise or resistance training. If you're trying to build muscle, then the cold may just uh, blunt some of the uh, uh, growth signal for the muscles. Uh, but uh, but that that can only happen also if you're doing it, you know, taking like an actual ice bath for a few minutes. If you're just taking a cold shower, then it's probably not uh, not going to have like a significant effect. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's mostly like an anti-inflammatory uh, response. That's interesting. So if I if I if I have an aggressive training session, I'm I'm just just trying to work out a cold bath is probably not going to be too good for after a yeah. strength yeah. training or you know hypertrophy training session yeah yeah you wouldn't want to do it like immediately after the workout uh, you would probably have to wait for maybe like uh, six or six plus hours uh, when it's safe uh, to do so uh, because like the information that you create from the workout is uh, like a signaling factor for the growth uh, of muscle and muscle hypertrophy. Uh, so uh, yeah, you don't want to shut it down immediately. Uh, you want to have it elevated slightly longer as you know, allow these adaptations to uh, set in. Mm, uh, but um, like a slight, you know, colder uh, soak, uh, like maybe like a ch chilly shower, that shouldn't be a problem mm -hmm. uh, to kind of cool down. Uh, but if, if it's like an actual ice bath or some something like that for maybe one to two minutes or three minutes, then that can be uh, like a problem. What's really interesting was what you mentioned about the heat shock proteins as well. I find that I don't necessarily have to train in the gym as, as often as I was before. I was training maybe five, six days a week, sometimes seven days, whereas now I'll train three days a week and I'm still able to obtain pretty much the same amount of muscle um, by using a sauna more often. Yeah. And I'm not even training. You know, in the sauna, I'm just sitting there sweating. But yeah, I'm holding the same muscle and I'm getting all the other benefits, you know, the proper detoxing and everything. That's quite amazing. How much does your um, uh, growth hormone increase by when you are in the sauna, let's say? Yeah, the, uh, the studies uh, that I've done is that um, like a 20-minute sauna raises growth hormone about like uh, maybe 200% or something and uh, a 30-minute sauna does so maybe like 300 percent um so it is a pretty pretty a good uh, response that you get uh, from there and yeah the growth hormone it's not going to like make you build muscle but it, it does have these anti-catabolic effects so it uh, reduces the muscle breakdown and uh, helps you to preserve uh, more muscle is there a cap for the length of time is it like all right this is too much stress now you know with the heat with the heat heat shock proteins yeah well um Usually, maybe, uh, like I would say, maybe uh, 40 minutes or something would be uh, like up the thresholds that you probably don't need to exceed. Uh, or like 30, 30 minutes is already enough. I think uh, 20 to 30 minutes is already enough, but uh, 40 may, maybe start to pushing it too far. And uh, like, even though you may be able to tolerate it and you're not going to, you know, show any negative signs immediately, you're still like sweating out all the toxins, but also like you're sweating out your electrolytes, uh, minerals, magnesium, uh, sodium. So uh, even though you could like sit there for an hour, 
it's it's not going to be that beneficial because you're losing uh, the electrolytes um, and uh, some immediate signs that you may see or for someone who doesn't have like that good cardiovascular fitness would be that they get the arrhythmia or they get like uh, elevated blood pressure so they some people should also be aware of that uh, so if you have like pre-existing uh, heart conditions then uh, yeah doing it too much is not a good idea what if you do sit in there for an hour like i do I'm not gonna lie I sit in there for an hour, but I do have some electrolytes at hand, which I take, and also have high mineral salt, which I put on my food. I feel good. Yeah. Would it still be too much? Would you still suggest, you know what, yeah, just tone it down to 45 minutes, half an uh, hour? Not, not, well, in that case, it's not, uh, not a problem if you're compensating uh, with uh, the electrolytes. Uh, so it, it's, it's like in and out, you know, uh, electrolytes in versus electrolytes out, <laughs> that kind of matter. And uh, well, well, like and the you know the infrared saunas they're not that hot either uh, compared to like the traditional saunas. Uh, they do give you like the benefits, uh, health benefits, and they have like other unique benefits related to the uh, infrared light. Uh, but they're not like that super hot that you get this uh, excessive uh, heat shock uh, response, uh, or you know that you're not, that you're gonna pass out or get arrhythmia. Mm, mm. Cool, man. Cool. Good to know. What about yeah. psychological resilience? Um, you know, obviously it's, uh, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to have be dealing with a lot of it, especially now during this whole pandemic, sure. there's a lot of psychological stuff going on. A lot of people stress, how would people deal with that? What is, what is a good formula to have psychological resilience during this time? Mm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, well, I think, I think like a lot of the foundation has to do with just taking care of your health and uh, being recovered. So, uh, if you're already stressed out because of sleep deprivation and uh, poor diet, obesity, and uh, like chronic exercise, then uh, your you know ability to tolerate psychological stress and or work stress or something else uh, is also very low compared to if your bucket is very low or very small. Uh, you're, you've been working on uh, emptying it out on a regular basis, then you can handle all this psychological stress uh, more more uh, better as well. Uh, so that's what you should you just uh, also always take time to recover and make sure that you sleep properly and uh, don't uh, ever go into like this super burnout zone uh, where you're burning the candle uh, from both ends. Mm. But other than that, I think it's also important to kind of realize that or make peace with the fact that uh, you can't really control a lot of the things that go on in the world. Uh, you can't control the weather. You can't control you know, global politics, uh, at least uh, to a reasonable degree, you can't control pandemics, uh, you can't control uh, war, you can't control these unpredictable events, including like traffic jams or uh, missing the bus or, uh, you know, getting hit with uh, some sort of a snowball <laughs> on a rainy day or whatever, like these random events, they're going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, have, we shouldn't be like distraught about them. That's where this uh, stoic philosophy kind of stems from as well, that you the only thing that you can really control is your own thoughts and actions. And once you're going to realize that negative things are kind of bound to happen, then you can make peace with them. And you can also just uh, maintain your calmness whenever they do happen. So you're not like surprised because if, if you're like stressed out because of uh, some other person saying you or giving, you know, saying something negative to you, then you're also kind of hinting that, like, how dare they, like, how was this supposed to happen to me, especially like I'm so this special person, like the fact is like, none of us are that special that we're completely free from these negative events uh, that are going to happen. And uh, we, we can only just control our response and kind of stay, uh, stay uh, calm, regardless whether or not they happen or not.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. I've been working on that for years, to be honest with you. At first, I used to allow myself to um, um, just just uh, absorb too much negative stuff, what people were saying about me, like, oh, you're on steroids. And I, even if I, I'm trying to tell them, no, I ain't, and they, they're arguing back, yes, you are. I'm like, how can you tell me I am? That doesn't even make sense. And I'm arguing with these people, mate. And that kind of turns me into an idiot, in all fairness, because sure. well, what's the point? Um, so yeah. talking more about the uh, hormetic stress, so you, we're surrounded by EMF everywhere. And um, I do question, is there a good amount of EMF or is it just all bad? So um, right. talk to me about EMF and uh, let's say uh, radiation hormetic stress. Yeah, um, well, I think, uh, you know, whether or not you think EMF is good or bad, is that? it's not going to be that uh, relevant because you can't you know, do much about it. So like uh, people are still going to roll it out and the people are actually demanding to have like faster, you know, uh, internet speed and those sort of things. Uh, you can only yet yeah, just uh, try to mitigate the damage as possible as, as much as possible. And I do think that, you know, being in a completely EMF free zone will also kind of leave you slightly more vulnerable to whenever you do get exposed to EMF because like, uh, like uh, we, we as people probably have like a higher tolerance to EMF and uh, radiation than like our grandparents uh, who didn't have like a smartphone next to them all the time with uh, 5G turned on. So uh, we already are more resilient against EMF and uh, we, uh, we also uh, probably, uh, you know, would get like some of this hormetic uh, adaptation from it, um, whether or not, because uh, like hormesis itself doesn't have to always be beneficial. It doesn't have to be like a positive thing for your body. Sometimes you just need to have this resilience. Uh, like resilience itself is relatively like indifferent. It doesn't make you better or it doesn't make you worse. You stay the same or you stay indomitable to the stress. So resilience uh, against EMF is a thing, I think. And uh, we probably can uh, build it up. And some research shows that EMF can promote like autophagy a little bit uh, because uh, the body just tries to uh, repair the damage that is caused by the EMF. Uh, so there maybe are like some specific, you know, um, like EMF can cause like DNA damage and there are like DNA damage repair proteins that get activated in response to those things. So, uh, you know, the body does a pretty good job in uh, dealing with it. And I think it will only become a problem if you're never never taking a break from the EMF. So if you're always surrounded by a lot of technology, you're always having, uh, you know, wireless earbuds on, you're always uh, next to a cell tower, then that can be problem problematic. Uh, but if you take like time off to go into nature, uh, you walk uh, with your uh, bare feet on the ground, you also turn off uh, your Wi-Fi at night, you sleep on a grounding mat maybe, uh, you uh, keep your phone on airplane mode, you don't use, uh, you know, wireless earbuds or wireless technology that much, then for you, it's probably not going to be uh, that uh, significant. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there's, there's a lot of that going on, to be honest with for you. Sure. And um, like specific nutrients can also help with, uh, like deal with uh, radiation as well. Uh, so in some, in like past um, studies, uh, they, give uh, things like magnesium and vitamin C and uh, the vitamin E as well as vitamin A to uh, let's say these uh, nuclear disaster workers and they and they have less health problems compared to those 
who don't get those supplements. Uh, so eating like a nutrient dense diet is pretty important, and maybe like increasing your magnesium intake can be good to uh, like lower the stress um, response. So you know what I've I've heard about magnesium. I've heard about vitamin C, but vitamin E and A. No, I, I don't I don't think I have. Are there any type of foods you reckon would be good to take? Or do you think like a strong supplement would be good? Uh, well, like you do get like plenty of vitamin E from most foods. Uh, you get it from, uh, you know, fish and nuts and seeds and uh, some, uh, you know, olive oil has and some of them like you probably get it from like meat and eggs as well. Mm. Uh, but uh, for vitamin A, you probably need to, you know, animal sources of vitamin A are uh, most bioavailable. Uh, so like liver... Uh, organ meats, meats, uh, you know, fish, those things. Uh, okay. The, 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 the organ meats or fish. Yeah. Right. Okay. With fish, I got that covered. Organ, yeah. that's an area I'm still trying to work on. I keep hearing, I keep seeing people post about organ meats. I'm like, come on, man. There must be a way around this. <laughs> I can't well, the, force myself to like it. Right. Well, there are these. Uh, desiccated uh, liver capsules like organ meat capsules uh were freeze dried basically and they maintain all the nutrients and uh you don't have to get like the taste <laughs> yeah 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 um i do have those from uh, hunter and gather um <clears throat> so what's what would you say is a good way of healing quickly what's what's a good way to heal recover and heal faster in this day and age with all the stresses that we have um Good sleep, probably. Mm. Dense foods. Um, what else? Yeah, well, I don't know. I'll take like an example. Like if I were to come from an airplane, I flew in from LA or something. I'm, I'm jet lagged. I'm sleep deprived. Um, I'm yeah under chronic stress. Then what I would do is uh, I would just, uh, if I were to get home, I would uh, try to hit the sauna uh, for maybe 20 or 30 minutes. And then I'll do like a, some cold exposure as well, like cold uh, plunge or a cold shower. And uh, then I would uh, spend the rest of the day, you know, maybe doing like red light therapy, uh, walking, uh, not doing like a bunch of intense exercise, just trying to keep myself moving and getting some sunlight and hydrating, eating, eating nutrient dense foods and those things. Uh, so, that, you know, that would, uh, that would be like a good recovery day. I find like the hot and cold uh, contrast shower is one of the best things for just uh, relieving the information and relieving the uh, soreness as well as just uh, fixing or alleviating the symptoms of uh, this uh, sleep deprivation but uh, in the evening i would uh, definitely you know get a, try to get a good night's sleep of um, you know blocking blue light before going to bed and sleeping in a slightly cooler environment and uh, trying to go to trying to get like a full full night's sleep of uh, at least like eight to nine hours mm, mm, mm. so um yeah sleep seems to be like the, one of the biggest out of all, let's say, biohacks out of absolutely everything, as far as I'm concerned, if there's like one thing to take away from any biohack is definitely good quality sleep. If I was to use just one thing where I don't have to buy anything, I would say sleep is so important for dealing with stress, um, insulin sensitivity or ghrelin, or leptin, all types of hormones. Uh, would you agree? What's what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I think like sleep is like the foundation to health. So uh, you can do all the biohacks, you can do all the crazy diets, uh, but uh, they're not going to be as effective or they're not even going to work if you don't have your sleep, uh, 
you know, at least like uh, uh, above a certain threshold uh, of optimization. So sleep does uh, control a lot of the recovery of the body and uh, yeah, determines a lot of your metabolic health and uh, that sort of thing. So yeah, sleep is probably the first thing uh, I should, uh, or like people should try to look into when, when it comes to improving their health. Absolutely. Hey man, it's been absolutely brilliant. Before we close, I just want to touch on a book that you're currently, uh, what you've been working on with uh, James D. Antonio. What's the name yeah. of that book? Yeah, it's uh, The Immunity Fix. And uh, yeah, it's going to talk about how do you uh, strengthen your immune system, increase your overall resilience. And uh, we cover topics like uh, just the foundation of the immune system, uh, the uh, autoimmune diseases, we t touch upon like what, how is the, what's the link between like cancer and immunity, as well as like, uh, you know, the coronavirus and immunity, how can you kind of, what, what is the cause of that, what, what you can do to mitigate some of the effects. Uh, but the kind of approach is very holistic in a sense, we mm. talk about all the similar practices that we discussed uh, today, you know, how do you improve your diet, metabolic flexibility. Uh, some exercise, uh, hot and cold, and and um, sleep, uh, exercise, and uh, intermittent fasting. Those things are all covered in there, plus plus some other uh, cool cool things. That's really cool, man. I, I done a podcast with James before, and uh, we covered some things from. He he's got a few books, and one of them is called The Salt Fix, and uh, it, it makes me feel like a, a proper salt addict now. <laughs> I, I seriously, I like while I'm sitting in the sauna, I'll, I'll have some salty water, bit of extra salt in my dinner. I put yeah. salt in my coffee. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a bit much, but I find that everything else I'm, I'm, I'm able to deal with a lot better. My training is a lot better. Um, I did have a couple of cramps a few times out of the sauna, but yeah, I don't get that anymore. So yeah, I think I believe that this book is going to be pretty good with your knowledge and James. <laughs> wow. Where can yeah. this book be found? Uh, well, it's going to be on Amazon and uh, it should be out uh, when this uh, podcast airs. Okay. Awesome. 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 Thank you very much, Seem. Where, where can everybody find you? I know you're on Instagram. Um, have you got a website as well? Yeah, it's uh, seamland.com and uh, on Instagram and other platforms, I'm also seamland. Seamland. And you've also got a, a podcast channel, which is incredible. Absolutely. I tune into that all the time. And um, what is that called, please? And I'll just put that in the show notes. Yeah, it's a Seamland podcast. Seamland podcast and also your YouTube channel. Uh, where you put a lot of golden nuggets. Again, thank you so much for your time, Seam. You're, you're just a, a bundle of information, walking encyclopedia. And uh, <laughs> when you come out with another book, I'll be reaching out to you again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good talking with you. And yeah, glad to touch, glad to uh, catch up. Always, man, always. Hopefully, if this pandemic is not too long, we'll catch up again at maybe some um, social event. Social <laughs> event. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Thanks a lot for your time. We'll catch up soon.